This Faith and Finance podcast is underwritten in part by Movement Mortgage. Movement provides residential home loans in all 50 states. Founded in 2008, amidst one of the biggest financial meltdowns in American history, Movement set forth on a mission to create a movement of change in their industry, in corporate cultures, and in communities. First, they pioneered a unique approach to home loans centered around helping home buyers quickly and easily. Then they created a model so that a portion of their profit creates a long-term positive impact in communities both close to home and around the globe through the Movement Foundation and Movement Schools. It all comes back to their mission to love and value people. Learn more at movement.com faith. Movement Mortgage LLC supports equal housing opportunity, NMLS number 39179. For licensing information, please visit nmlsconsumeraccess.org. It's understandable that when you hand over your money to someone for safekeeping, you'd like to get it back. Hi, I'm Rob West. And that's the relationship you have with your bank. You put your money in with the expectation of it being there for you, plus interest. Is that a sure thing with online banks? I'll talk about that today, and then it's on to your calls at 800-525-7000. That's 800-525-7000. This is Faith and Finance, biblical wisdom for your financial decisions. So a few years ago, when online banks were first coming, well, online, we got a lot of calls from folks wondering if they were safe. Now, it seems we're getting that call volume again with folks wondering if putting their money in an online bank is a prudent thing to do, possibly as a result of a few bank failures this past spring. Uh, Banking is perhaps the most heavily regulated industry in the U.S., but it isn't foolproof. Managers are human, and humans make mistakes. Uh, There will always be bank failures, but the system we have in place makes bank closures rare and isolated. Now, if you're concerned about putting money in a bank that has no branches, no actual buildings that you can physically walk into, uh, you should know that there's actually very little difference between a so-called brick-and-mortar bank with branches and an online bank that exists only in cyberspace. In fact, to most customers of brick-and-mortar banks, there's no difference at all because they never go into a bank branch these days. That was a trend already well underway when COVID hit, forcing many banks to close branches to walk-in traffic. Uh, Since you can deposit a check with a smartphone now, many people have little need to actually go to a bank. Banks, of course, have noticed this, and they've been closing branches right and left the past few years. In 2020, there were about 90,000 brick-and-mortar bank branches in the U.S. By 2022, that number had fallen to just over 70,000. Banks need fewer branches these days because they're now offering all or most of their services online as well. Now, there's no doubt that some people want in-person banking, the ability to sit down with a loan officer face-to-face, for example. But it seems a lot more people are content to do their banking completely online, often with just a smartphone. 
But if folks can have that same cyber experience with a brick-and-mortar bank, why are so many people flocking to online banks and leaving brick-and-mortar behind? Well, it's simply a matter of interest. Online banks have significantly higher yielding rates and lower fees than traditional banks. That's because they don't have the overhead costs of maintaining dozens or even hundreds of brick-and-mortar branches. Still, to some people, the idea of not being able to physically go to a bank branch and take their money out is worrisome. Just how safe are online banks? Well, the answer is every bit as safe as brick-and-mortar banks and credit unions, as long as they're federally insured. That means they're backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, just in case a bank or credit union fails. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, insures deposits at federally insured banks. The National Credit Union Administration insures deposits at federally insured credit unions. In both cases, that coverage is a maximum of $250,000 per person per institution. So an online bank has the same insurance coverage as a brick-and-mortar bank as long as it's FDIC-insured. And you can check on that. Go to FDIC.gov and use their Bank Find feature. Or visit NCUA.gov and use their Research a Credit Union tool to verify if an institution is federally insured. But you'll probably have a difficult time finding one that isn't. Now, what about cybersecurity, you ask? Well, if everything is done online, doesn't that make your account more vulnerable to hackers and thieves? Well, all banks, as well as online vendors, have a vested interest in preventing that. They use data encryption technologies such as two-factor or biometric authentication, electronic signature verification, and continuous account monitoring. But customers have to do their part to maintain cybersecurity, too, and that's whether they use an online or a brick-and-mortar bank. That starts with having a secure internet connection and a strong password. Never use public Wi-Fi to access any of your accounts, either financing or shopping. That person sitting next to you in the coffee shop could be waiting for a chance to hack into your account and clean you out. So to recap the question, are online banks safe? The answer, as long as they're federally insured, they're every bit as safe as brick-and-mortar. All right, your calls are next, 800-525-7000. We'll be right back. Absolutely free. We know you've learned to be suspicious of those words, but really, you can get biblical financial wisdom delivered to your inbox each week absolutely free. Articles, videos, podcasts, and special offers on biblical resources. Nearly 60,000 people receive our free weekly wisdom email, and you can too. Create your free FaithFi account by going to faithfi.com and click sign up to begin receiving weekly wisdom in your inbox. Are you searching for a way to become a better, faithful steward of the resources that God has given you? Well, download the FaithFi app and join the 37,000 others who are already using our app. The FaithFi app will provide you with wisdom, community, and simply help you stay on track with your finances. We have three money management options to choose from, so find an option that fits your unique needs. It's available on desktop or mobile. Simply go to faithfi.com and click app to get started.
Welcome back to Faith and Finance. I'm your host, Rob West. The number to call is 800-525-7000. I'm looking forward to hearing from you as we take your calls and questions from across the country. In fact, let's head out to Naperville. Hi, Vicki. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks, Rob. Um, I have a question. I got um, an inheritance from my father, and we have about $150,000 to invest. Or, and and so we're not sure what to do with it. Um, somebody mentioned to me um, investing in a, a contract with livestock, and um, and so I'm wondering if you've heard of this. It's a guaranteed return, um, and what your thoughts are about it. And and we do have an emergency fund. We are currently both of us are working. We plan to retire in the next four years or so. Um, so we don't need the money now, but we want to be wise with it. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are. We still owe about $170,000 on our house. And our emergency fund is about 60000 But we have the, my father's inheritance in there right now because it's Sally May, and we can transfer it quickly. Okay. All right. Very good. So how much is the inheritance that you're receiving? It's, it's about, we have about 150 to invest. $150,000. Okay. And um, what are your main goals with this money as you just kind of look at your overall financial life? What is it that uh, you really want to accomplish with it? Great question. We don't need the money now, so we would like to put it in a place where it could make the most yield. Okay. All right. And what would you think would be the time horizon on that? Uh, I would say probably five years, four or five years when we retire, probably. Okay. And at that point, might you want to use the full amount to, let's say, retire the mortgage or do something else with it? Or do you see this money just uh, being money you'd continue to grow and, and tap much further down the road? Yeah, I would say probably continue to grow. Okay. And do you have an advisor that you use to manage any other investments? Yes, Raymond James. Okay, mm-hmm. very good. Uh, you know, I would probably just have that advisor bring this, uh, you know, these investable assets in as a part of your overall investment strategy. And if you needed to carve this out for some other purpose, other than just kind of being involved in your your full investment plan for retirement, then he could or she could approach it a little bit differently. But if you really, you know, you don't have any specific purpose for it, you're not looking to retire debt with it, you've got your 401 1k, then it really just becomes a part of the overall assets that you have. And, you know, he's already managing those. And I wouldn't see why you just wouldn't roll this into that in terms of being invested uh, in the same way that the rest of it is. Thank you. Have you heard of investing in um, livestock contracts? Uh, you know, I'm familiar with the concept, but I would certainly not be uh, someone to weigh in on, you know, the the viability of that, especially at this point in time. I just don't have a working knowledge of whether, uh, you know, that would be a good thing or a bad at this, you know, during this time. So I would find somebody who's a lot more uh, specialized in their knowledge of that area for sure. Hmm. Okay. I'm not sure who that would be, but... 
Okay. Yeah, perhaps your advisor right. could help you locate somebody who has maybe a, a more specialized knowledge in that area, but unfortunately, I do not. But I'm delighted to hear that you're thinking uh, strategically about how to handle this money, and I uh, certainly appreciate you uh, checking in with us today. May the Lord bless you, Vicki, and if we can help further along the way, don't hesitate to reach out. 800-525-7000 is the number to call to Illinois. Hi, Jan. Go right ahead. Hi, I am a Christian. I am 76 years old. I support my local church and other Christian ministries. Uh, I, I built a house with one of my daughters and her husband after my husband passed away. And I own half and they own the other half. I have another daughter. When I pass, my daughters will each get half of my half. There is a discrepancy, however. One daughter says that half should be of the price we initially paid. I say it should be of the amount the house is worth at my passing, which will probably be much more. Mm, Yeah. So you would always want to consult with an attorney just to figure out exactly uh, how this will be handled at your death. And you could certainly consult with a CPA as well. But here's what I would say. Uh, The portion that's owned currently through either a uh, tenants in common would probably be the way that it's done, where uh, you have um, each person owning 50%. Uh, obviously, the value of that 50% is the market value at any given time. So when that asset is sold uh, at any point, whether that's before or after your death, then that 50% that she owns, your daughter, would be worth whatever the market value is. Uh, in terms of the amount that would be received as an inheritance, Inheritance, uh, again, at your death, uh, the market value of that property would then be split among whoever uh, your beneficiaries are, those who are going to receive your assets according to your will. Um, so all of that would happen as of the date of death. And then at that point, uh, you know, each person who inherits that property, the decision could be made for that property to be held and continue to appreciate, or it could be sold and they would be paid out of the proceeds of the sale of the property based on their percentage of ownership. So it's really all based on the market value. Um, is she asking that question to determine the any taxes that might be due, or is she trying to determine something else? No, not really uh, what the taxes, no. No, just okay. at the time of my death, how how the house should be divided up. I see. Yeah, and so at your death, the the asset is worth whatever the market will bear at that time, and then each person would be entitled, let's say it was sold immediately after your death, they would be entitled to the percentage that's spelled out in your will, or if this property's in a trust, uh, it would be handled that way. Um, and basically, your will would say, okay, if your portion is worth 50%, then the market value as of your date of death uh, 50% of that market value would then be divided uh, among your heirs that are named in your will to receive your portion of the property. And that would be not the original purchase price value. It would be the value as of the, the market value as of the date of your death that they would be entitled to. Okay, that's what I thought. Thank you for clarifying that for me. I really appreciate it. Happy to do it, Jan. Thanks for calling and being on the program today. We appreciate it very much. Uh, quickly to, uh, well, we'll stay in uh, Illinois to Glenview. Hi, Karen. Go ahead. Hi, Rob. Thank you so much for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Um, I have two questions. The first one is I've already maxed my I bond for this next year, 
and I did one previously last year, but what I understand is I received a $3,600 refund from the federal government, and I thought I heard you say that you can add that to your I-bond even though you've met the maximum 10000 for the year, but I'm not sure if that's true. It and is, but it would have had question. to go directly into the I-bond uh, as a part of your refund. You don't receive it and then turn around. You would actually fill out Form 8888 and allow that to be designated into the I-bonds, and that would allow you to purchase an additional 5000 over and above the 10000 that you already put in. Um Given that you haven't done that or you didn't designate that, it wouldn't be able to be done at this point. But I'm not disappointed about that because I think the I-bonds are not nearly as attractive now as they were, uh, you know, a few months ago. I know you have a part two, so stay on the line. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back with your additional question. We're grateful for support from Eventide Investments on the Faith and Finance Program. Eventide's approach to values-based investing is grounded in the belief that humankind was created in the image of God with intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. Eventide calls this investing that makes the world rejoice. More information is available at eventideinvestments.com. That's eventideinvestments.com. We are grateful for support from Sound Mind Investing in the Faith and Finance Program. If you have money in a retirement account or just a general investing account, you know the stock market can sometimes seem like a roller coaster. But it is possible to enjoy both profit and peace of mind in investing, no matter what's happening in the market. You can see a short video webinar on that topic at soundmindinvesting.org. Since 1990, Soundmind Investing has sought to offer financial wisdom for living well. Soundmindinvesting.org. Well, it's great to have you with us today on Faith and Finance. I'm Rob West. We're taking your calls and questions today on anything financial. We've got some lines open. We'd love to hear from you. 800-525-7000. Again, 800-525-7000. Give us a call. Uh, back to Glenview, Illinois. Just before the break, we were talking to Karen about her I-bond account. She was asking about the ability to fund beyond the 10000 annual maximum. And what I had shared, Karen, was that you have to do that directly from your tax refund. You can't receive it and then put it in. It would have had to have been designated on a special form that you wanted it to go straight into an I-bond account. Although I'm not disappointed if you didn't take advantage of that simply because with the current rate uh, down lower than it has been uh, previously, they're not as attractive right now. At 4.3%, you can do better in, let's say, a a 10-month or a 12-month CD, you could get over 5% right now. So uh, I think the I-bond composite rate will continue to fall as the consumer price index falls. And therefore, uh, it's probably not a bad thing that you didn't add to it. But give me your thoughts on that. And then I know you had a second question. I agree with you. Thank you so much for your sure. input on whether or not, even if I could add to the I-bond, I should. So I looked on the bank rate site and I did find I have my um, investment at Sachs, Goldman Sachs, yeah. and I did see both Marcus and Forbright have are paying five. Um, Forbright is paying five point two zero, 
and Marcus is paying 5% on CDs. And I, I guess these one is a one-year, one is a nine-month. So I wanted to ask your opinion on that, if you think that's the better way to go or yeah, another. I, I like a CD option a lot. I mean, we have very attractive rates right now. Um, I mean, the only downside is you're not going to get a, a long-term uh, return on that. So you're probably talking a year. And at that point, if rates are coming down, those very attractive rates won't be more as readily available. Um, so if you want a longer-term play, you may want to look at a bond portfolio or a bond portfolio with a maybe a smaller allocation to stocks. That is going to introduce more risk into the equation, but it has greater long-term growth potential. Uh, whereas the CD is paying a very attractive rate right now with no risk. I mean, it's ultimate safety with the backing of the U.S. government and the FDIC insurance, but it's temporary and probably won't be around in the years following this as you try to roll it over year after year. So that would be the only consideration. But um, I like uh, really any bank that has FDIC insurance would be fine as long as it's one of the larger ones. Okay, but but you're right about it might be better just to put it in with the rest of the investment instead of parceling it out in a I CD. Think, yeah, I think that's right. Unless there was some reason to do it, you needed more ready access to it. If you needed the money in, let's say, three years or less, then absolutely that'd be the way to go. But if it's money you just don't see yourself needing anytime soon and you can have a five or better yet a 10-year time horizon on it, then I think taking advantage of these attractive stock prices, but even more importantly, if you want to be more conservative, the bond prices where the bonds are actually going to increase, uh, the bond prices will go up as the interest rates fall. And we know they will at some point, either later this year or next, and you're going to be able to take advantage of those higher yields. That to me is a better long-term strategy, whether you do that yourself or you have an advisor help you with it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for an advisor, you recommend going to the Kingdom Advisor site? That's right. Or you could just head to our website at faithfi.com. That's faithfi.com. And then just click on the top of the page. It says, find a CKA. And Certified Kingdom Advisor is the designation we trust for uh, men and women who've met high standards and character and competence and integrity, but also they've been trained to bring a biblical worldview of financial decision-making. Thank you so much for your help. Right. You're welcome, Karen. God bless you. Uh, to Grand Rapids. Hey, Jonathan, go ahead, sir. Hi, Rob. This is Jonathan. I have a question. So my girlfriend uh, has been renting for a few years now. And uh, so she has, she's in her career. Uh, she's been in her career for two years. I'm a student. I'm going into my sophomore year. She is sick of renting. Um, so she's had uh, a thought across her mind. Would it be cheaper to, to buy a house in the hopes to sell it? Um, or to keep renting, um, and she's like, this is like for like four, four or five years, um, and she's just trying to figure out what would be the best financial decision. Yeah, so she really wants the opportunity to be able to sell this home in as soon as four years. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Yeah. I would probably say not to buy at that point. You know, typically three to five years would be a fine time horizon in a typical market. Uh, I think in this kind of market that we're in right now, five to seven years is really more likely uh, in terms of you needing to be able to hold it for that period of time to be able to get your money back. The challenge is buying and selling real estate is very costly. The transactions costs, the taxes involved. Um, you know, you've got to have a title insurance policy. Uh, 
Uh, so there are costs involved and they can be significant. Um, and in light of that, especially given where we are right now with the housing market still being very high, and we don't see it uh, growing tremendously more, but I also don't see it declining because even though we have higher interest rates and a looming recession, we still have a lack of inventory nationally. We don't have enough homes in this country for all the people looking for them, namely the millennials that are buying uh, single-family homes and those moving out of densely populated urban areas to suburban areas. They're now working remotely, and as a result, we just need more homes, probably two to three million in this country. And so in light of that, I think prices will stay elevated, but they could dip slightly. And so if she needed to get out of it in three or four years, she may find a situation where she's actually selling it at a loss when you factor in all of the costs involved of buying and selling the property on the front end and the back end. And so I think for that reason, just given her time horizon, I'd probably continue to rent if it were me. Okay. And it said, even if, so if she did decide to go and buy a house, she would say at least hold on to that house for five to seven years, right? That would be ideal, just given where housing prices are. Uh, it, would she need to borrow, uh, take out a mortgage in order to do this? Um, yes. I, I, yeah. I'm not sure of her finances. Yeah. So that's the only other consideration is just given where rates are right now. A year from now, she may be in a better spot with interest rates a little bit lower. So that would be the other thing is to consider delaying this purchase until interest rates come back down. But I think the bottom line is if she's got a, and we never know, right, what the Lord has in store. And so she may need to sell sooner. But if she thinks she could stay for five to seven years and she's got at least 20% for the down payment, and the uh, the debt service on it, the mortgage, including the taxes and insurance, were no more than 25% of her take-home pay, then it's certainly something she could consider at that point. I think she just needs to be careful recognizing her window is a little bit shorter than I would typically like it. And there are significant costs to both buy and sell, and she needs to factor that in as she thinks about it. I hope that's helpful to you, Jonathan. You sound like a great boyfriend helping her think through this right now. And thanks for being on the program today. Well, that does it for us today. I'm Rob West. Thanks to our amazing production team and to you for listening. I hope you'll join us again next time right here on Faith and Finance. Faith and Finance is provided by FaithFi and listeners like you.